listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. If you come from an entertainment background, there are certain terms that entertainers use. We always say civilians. We call people who have never been in a business, don't know how to use them. But they're basically, it doesn't make a difference if you're a musician, a stand-up comic, an actor, a writer, a director. But there's terms like chops. Like if someone's really good at something, they got chops. Or terms like, that guy's a monster if he's a killer at his talent. But my guest today, not only is Chops and is a monster, I think he's more than a monster. I think he's, he's a beast on the axe. And my guest is Steve Stevens. How you doing, Steve? I'm good, man. Nice to uh, join you today. Yeah, so I want to I talk about your great career, but I want to start off with uh, your, your master class coming up. I believe that's on Sunday. It's the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Tell me about that, because I know they used to have it in L.A. when I lived in L.A., like Rudy Sarzo was involved, and they'd have it at, I think, that, at... Uh, the whiskey or one of those places, but now we can't do that. Tell me how you got involved in it and tell me what's going to be happening. Um, yeah, I had done a number of the, the actual in-person ones. Um, but then since, uh, since lockdown, um, they figured out a way to do it virtually online, uh, where people sign up. Um, there's different tiers where you can just observe or you can be, uh, part of the uh, festivities, if you will, you can ask questions, um, and uh, we did one, you know, um, <clears throat> about a month ago, and it was actually really cool. It was really, really. I got, I think I got as much out of it as the the uh, the guitar students, and we cover a lot of ground, um, and uh, you know, not um, it's not just myself doing them. They've got a wide variety of people, managers and record people, and you know, I just. You know, when, when I'm asked to do something like this, I put myself back when I was a 14-year-old kid thinking I could have logged on and asked Jimmy Page a question or, you know, I would have been there in a heartbeat, you know. So um, so I, it's, been, it's been cool, and it's actually one of, the, one of the, um, the things that we can take advantage of when we're, when we're not on the road and, you know, uh, uh, traveling so much. So when you say, you know, there's people who can, you know, watch and there is different levels. How are you as, as a teacher, because you're such a good guitarist and I know you remember starting out, but how can you decipher, I mean, can people, how can you decipher who needs what? Because if people are looking at you, if some guy can just shred and he, he comes and wants to be up a level like you, that's fine. But if someone can't, how do you, how do you teach them? How does this all work? Well, I think, um, I mean, there's so many people and so many guitarists that are doing these. And, you know, I try to look at it as what can I bring to the table? They're not going to get from maybe a shred guitar player or a very, um, you know, schooled guitar player. Cause I'm really, I'm, 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 I'm from the streets, you know, you know, I'm, I, I, I made my career playing in bars and I'm not, a, I'm not a, you know, uh, terribly uh scholastic guitar player so but i have a long career and and um and i think a lot of guitar players the information that they can't readily get is how to capture your guitar uh how to record it and um uh you know how to uh apply what you do as a guitar player to uh to songs um and i've worked with so many different singers so i have that that experience of, you know, okay, you've picked up this instrument, you, you, you've got some uh, facility on it. Now, what do you do with it in a band? How do you compliment your drummer? How do you help move the song along rather than just waiting for your guitar solo and, you know, doing a blowout or something? So I bring a lot of that uh, actual um, experience to it. Now, this is great because you're doing this during, you know, the COVID and as we say, the, the pandemic and the self-quarantining. How, I talk to different musicians and actors, how they're they're dealing with this, what's going on. Creatively, they say in the beginning, they were a little stifled, but then they developed. How have you gone into this? Because you're a guy who performs live. You're used to playing at big crowds and that has to be a missing part of your life because it's been so much. How are you relating to what's going on now and are you u- using it to a very productive manner? Um, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, we, um, every year Billy Idol, uh, does the Vegas residency and we, um, we finished in March. I think we were one of the last, uh, acts to actually uh, play. And, uh, 
you know, we, we were just getting information in March about it and we stopped doing meet and greets and finished our shows. And then, uh, th- our original plan was to, uh, was to go in and record some new music. So he said, uh, you know, let's, uh, quarantine and, uh, and see if we can make that happen. And fortunately, you know, with Idol and I, it's, it's, you know, it's a small operation and, um, the producer we were working with, Butch Walker is, um, is also a one-man army, engineers and plays and does all. So the three of us, he also quarantined, the three of us piled into Butch's studio and uh, and we continue to write and record. And so, and that's, I think, been a big part. Continue to do the music, uh, you know, is, is been a big part of keeping our sanity to a certain extent. And um, and the other, the, uh, yeah, I miss playing and, uh, and I miss touring and, and for all the, for all the, you know, reasons. Um, but, um, you know, I have a home studio and, and, uh, you know, other than the, the touring or, or, or taking a vacation with my wife, I'm in here anyway. So <laughs> it's not that different on that, in, in, in that respect, you know, it's just, I have more time now. So, <laughs> so I can spend more time in the studio. <laughs> That's always good. Now explain to me your, uh, writing relationship with Billy and has it changed over the years? I mean, you know, you guys have been together for a long time. How, how, how does it work? Who does what? Is it, do you sit down and brainstorm or does someone go, oh crap, I got an idea and send a text. Hey dude, I got an idea. You know, check your email. I got something. How's it work? Really is. I wish that it was a blueprint because man, we, 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 it would make things a lot easier. It doesn't, it, it can be so every every song is a different set of circumstances, um, and also you know depending on who who can, can play a big role in that. But it, but our relationship and the way that we come up with tunes and the way that I uh, try and craft uh, the music around uh, to complement uh, a song that's never changed, and that's that that and I and, and hope. Hopefully, it never will because that's what's enabled us to continue to work together for 38 years. Uh, the fact that I almost approach my guitar playing like a director would, you know, and and um, and I think <clears throat> I think what served me well also is that Idol knows that I'm not uh, that the songs that I work on with him are not. I don't have an agenda about my guitar playing or. Uh, or, you know, sometimes if we get together, I'll play bass or I'll work on keyboards or something and whatever, whatever's going to move the song forward. Uh, that's my job, regardless of what it is stylistically. Now, how did you get into music? You know, you said you were 14 and I think, I believe you're from Brooklyn. Um, what, 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 what made you decide to pick up a guitar for the first time? Was it, you know, you're not, you're not old enough to have been influenced by the Beatles. I talked to a lot of guys who said they saw the Beatles. They went, holy crap, everything's different. You're not, you're, you're too old. I mean, you're too young for that. What was your influence? What really caught your eye? And what, what made you pick up that first guitar? Um, my dad brought home, and I remember this, he brought home a guitar and a music booklet. It was the Burl Ives guitar, <laughs> <laughs> the guitar package. It cost him $17. And he, uh, my dad was, had a great record collection, had no musical ability to, to, to save his life, but he brought home this guitar thing and he was a blue collar, hardworking guy. And, you know, by the time he'd have dinner, he, he, he was ready for bed. So the guitar ended up in my room and I have a, a brother who's five years older than me and all of his friends, a lot of his friends played guitar. This was you know, at the time of uh, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Simon and Garfunkel, huge folk guitar uh, thing happening. And, um, you know, my brother's friend said, you know, he's making a hell of a noise, but it's in time. He's got rhythm. So uh, the area that I lived in in Queens was uh, Far Rockaway, and there was a protest singer from there named Phil Oakes. And his sister was a guitar teacher, and they brought me to, to her. Uh, her name was Sonny, and... Um, and uh, she gave me my first guitar lessons, and then I went on to a, you know, from there I found another teacher, went to a summer camp and 
music and um, but really I just wanted to hang out with my brother and his friends and I figured if I played guitar that you know they, they'd let me tag along now when did you start forming your first bands was it in high school or what was it like um, man it seemed like back then and this would have been uh, you know uh, 72 71 72 um, it seemed like everybody had a garage band. You could literally, on a Sunday afternoon, walk through my neighborhood and listen and hear what bands were jamming. And I would just go and, and, and uh, you know, go and see garage bands and join in. And they'd look at me and go, ah, get away, kid. And, you know, I'd be like, and I'd point to the guitar player and I'd go, I'm better than him. <laughs> and they'd go, no, you ain't. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, most cases I was, but, um, you know, I went from, from, you know, little garage bands to, 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 uh, uh, you know, other garage bands playing high school, um, battle of the bands. And then, um, you know, eventually I went to the high school performing arts and was exposed to Manhattan and got in a cover band and started to play the Long Island club scene where Twisted Sister made their name. So you're playing that scene you're playing in a cover band. When do you start getting the itch to sit there and go, you know what, we got to, we got to do our own stuff because, you know, and I know back then, you know, seventies and eighties cover bands made good money because every place now that, you know, it's funny. I grew, I moved back from LA to New Jersey and there was okay. a, there was a band that I know from my, when I left, I mean, when I left 25 years ago and they're still around, but there's just like one guy left and they're still doing the same sets. So there's, there's been money in cover bands, but you know, you were, you were starting out young. You had to have a direction. When did you decide, hey, man, you know, n enough of this crap. I, I want to I make something besides doing this. Yeah. Um, well, the great thing about being in a cover band back then was that you had to dive in, and, and we took it really seriously. And we were, we were doing intricate pieces of music. We, you know, we were doing, like, Yes and Genesis and lots of things like that. And, <clears throat> but what it enabled, and Zeppelin, obviously, what it enabled me as a guitarist was I had to listen to those records and understand what made them click. Uh, oh, I see why Jimmy Page is adding another guitar that comes in on the chorus. So it, it prepared me for arranging and listening to guitar parts. And then also we were playing three or four nights a week. So getting up, getting up in front of uh, an audience and um, you know, you had to entertain them and you didn't just want to stand there and kind of like noodle um, because it was pretty competitive. <clears throat> so, uh, so I learned that part of it, but I remember that, that we were, we were financially doing pretty well. We had our own rehearsal studio. We had our own truck. We were little, you know, we had our own quadraphonic PA, you know, <laughs> Um, there was a guy who came to every show. He was my biggest fan. I didn't know the guy, but he used to come and he really listened to what I was doing. And he would, uh, you know, say, man, you know, he, he used to call me ever ready. Cause he said I had ever ready batteries in my fingers. And he said to me, you know, man, you got to get out of this scene because you are just going to end up doing this and being comfortable and you, you know you got to play original music you 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 got to get out of this and um i went wow this guy's my biggest fan and he's and i did i i start i i, I said you know what <clears throat> i need to uh you know by then i had gone to high school in new york and um i knew what the new york clubs thing was happening and uh, ramones were, were already uh, successful and then uh, all these bands were getting signed out of CBGBs and some of the Amaxes and you know Talking Heads television all this whole kind of new wave of, of rock and roll out of New York and <clears throat> so I left that band and eventually got into an original band living in, in Manhattan. Now was that a hard move just for the fact that as you said you were getting on stage you're building you're building your guitar styling you're building your stage presence you're having good crowds they know the music they're familiar with it so it's easier if you play a you know a yes solo or something people automatically get it yeah and you were making money was it was it hard were you a little bit scared to sit there and make that move even you know it was it was best for you cuz you were still a young guy what was it like just sitting there going that's like someone going out, has a great accountant job and goes, oh, screw this, I'm going to go be an actor. You know what I mean? What was it like for you? 
it was it was really hard and also the band the guys in the band were my best friends i loved them they were just the, the salt of the earth these were great guys and uh it was very difficult for me to explain to them that i need and 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 uh you know we it just um you know i needed to be in manhattan really it's 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 it, it was as simple as that. And they kind of accepted it. I think everybody, I was much younger than the other guys in the band. And I think they weren't surprised. You know, I think they knew at some point that it would happen. Now, what was the, what was the first band you joined up with and how did you get in it? It's not like now you can post something on the internet, you know, it's like back then you had to go in the magazine or at a club, a coffee shop, you'll see something that says guitar wanted. How did you get in your first band, your first non cover band? Well, there was about three pages in the Village Voice that had uh, musicians wanted ads, and uh, and that's you know they, they they were legitimate gigs. I mean, you know when Kiss was looking for a replacement or a drummer or a guitar player, they ran ads in the Village Voice. So I scoured the the ads and I went and I went on the auditions and I found this uh, group of guys. They were from Clarksville, Tennessee. They were army brats, and it was about fifteen of them living in a loft in uh in what was the music building on 251 west 30th street and um and uh they were uh they were they had something you know there was just something there and uh we hit it off they were also looking for a singer so i suggested the singer that it was in the cover band with uh and he came along with me and um and uh, I, li- I moved right into the loft, and it was uh, it was pretty gnarly because uh, <clears throat> we, ha- we didn't have a pot to piss in. Literally, didn't have a pot to piss in. I mean, uh, no no kitchen. Uh, there was just a pipe in the wall for the shower, and um, but nobody in that building. There was a lot of other musicians that that lived in that building. Cindy Lauper and uh, the Dead Boys for a while. Johnny Thunders lived there. And, uh, Alan Vega suicide, um, but none of us had money. But it was a scene, and it was it enabled us because we had our own rehearsal space to 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 play music anytime that we wanted. The the, the only downside was that this was Eighth uh, Avenue and Thirtieth Street, uh, right at the beginning of Hell's Kitchen in about nineteen seventy eight. It was pretty gnarly in New York during that time. And uh, I saw some pretty, pretty hellacious shit go on. Now, now, what was the pulse like? You know, it's you talk to people, you're in the beginning of the scene. You know, you're sitting there, you said Cindy Lauper, the Dead Boys, Johnny Thunders, people. What was the feel? Was there a strong camaraderie, like when you guys went to clubs? Were you helping each other out? Because, you know, all careers are different. You know, actors, some actors will stab an actor in the back in a heartbeat. What was it like? What was just the feel of the city and the music scene at that time? Could you feel the excitement? Yeah, because A, number one, bands were getting signed and getting getting actual deals um so there was there was um there was something to shoot for there was opportunities um and also there was a good influx of a lot of english musicians who had just moved to to uh to new york at that point because the the post english punk thing had kind of you know it was leading up to uh the kind of new romantic thing with duran duran and uh, culture club but that was it was just before that stuff so a lot of musicians moved to new york there was a lot of clubs to play um you know max's kansas city was still going cb's there's a place called gilda sleeves which was more mainstream rock uh, tracks it was just and there was record company people going to these clubs a and r people if you had a, a, a showcase you didn't have to pay to play you didn't you know club club owners uh, were, were supportive of the bands, and um, so there was an outlet, you know. Now you're in New York. How do you end up meeting with Billy? I know Billy was in Generation X first, you know, <clears throat> and he was in. I mean, how did that? I know you guys met in New York. Somehow, were you matched up somehow, or what was the meeting? How did it happen? So the the band that I was in, uh, <clears throat> we eventually got a a deal with Island Records and Jimmy Miller, who was the producer of the Rolling Stones, uh, was our producer. And we ended up down in in the Bahamas at Compass Point Studios. And we were actually 
living in the Rolling Stones house there. It was a guy, I mean, it was, we, th- we thought we had made it, <laughs> you know, so we thought this is it, you know, we went from eating a, you know, a chicken pot pie to, you know, God climbed for coconuts in the morning and, you know, lay, you know, we thought we had it. Um, the only thing we didn't have was the songs <laughs> and, um, the record record ended up being shelved. Um, and, uh, and it kind of, at that point we were starting to look for the management to help us, you know, what are we going to do? Were we going to remix this record? What, you know, it's Island wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, and we, we, uh, caught the eye of Bill Coyne, who was the, the manager of KISS. And he came to see the band a couple of times at our rehearsal place. We booked some some shows. And in, um, in uh, my conversations with him, it became apparent that, that I needed other musicians to challenge me, songwriters and people that had vision and, and, and uh, because I was always the one having to, to kind of propel this thing and you know, I needed to learn from other musicians. Um, so I left the band and a coin continued to manage me. And we said that uh, we actually ran an ad in the Village Voice, guitarist looking for a band, you know, and it ran for one week. And then Bill called me and he said, do you know who Billy Idol is? And <clears throat> this was just when the there was clubs like the Ritz were playing uh, Dance With Myself. There was a dance remix version of it. Went on for like eight minutes. And, You'd hear it every night. And I went, oh, yeah, dancing with myself guy. Yeah. And he said, well, we're managing him. He's new, moved to New York and you guys should meet, you know. Um, and uh, and we did. And we and we we met very inauspiciously, just like, hey, I I knew every musician in New York. He was going to put a band together. I was going to help him put that band together. And all I said was when it comes time for the guitar slot, I hope you consider me. Um, but then we kind of, as time went on, started to discover what our common ground was because I certainly wasn't a punk rock guitar player, although I liked the punk bands and I liked the energy. To me, the Ramones were, were four guys that loved uh, communication breakdown. <laughs> you know, To me, that's what punk rock was, an extension of, of that element of Zeppelin uh, or the Yardbirds. And... Um, and then we started to talk and I, I, I said, I knew I was a big Blue Reed fan. I knew all of Coney Island Baby at the time and Mott the Hoople and a lot of the early English glam stuff. And we found our common ground. And that's really when we started to devise what sound of Billy Idol would be. When you say devise, how do you go about devising a sound? Because you had a very different sound, and you know it took off in America. I was in college then, and we listened to that inside out. I mean, and it was different. That's what we liked. How did you devise a sound? Because you're a guy who you know loves music. You know, as you said, you guys have some of the same influences. How do you come? How do you sit there? Do you sit down and say, okay? I mean, what's a meaning of devising a sound like? Um. Well, you've got uh, with Billy. It was always the two the two of us as partners but also uh his producer keith forsey now billy's coming at it from a very uh you know punk rock he loved reggae so he liked all the kind of sonic things that was happening with dub and remixes and he also loved you know classic american rock uh, elvis you know johnny burnett uh you know all of the american classic stuff credence the doors um so that's Billy. I'm the guitar hero stuff. I'm the Zeppelin, Jeff Beck, bit of Hendrix. And, and at that time, uh, Billy's actually one of the things that he turned me on to was Susie and the Banshees. And there was a guitarist in that band named John McGee. And he was very good at painting these kind of like sonic textures and things that, um, that I really dug. So he was an influence on us. And then our, our producer, Keith Forsey, uh, came from doing disco records so we've got a dance guy and we all kind of like went to our our specialties you know all right the the drum track's gonna be a disco thing and we're gonna have the the energy of punk and i'm gonna put some heavy guitar and psychedelic and you know sonic painting and stuff and and that's really what it was it was just like let's throw all of our specialties into the pot 
Now, the first album, when do you, how long into your relationship do you start recording that? Um, we started writing right away um, because um, we, uh, you know, we, we, as a band, you know, we found, we got our drummer, bass player that I knew, and, uh, and we, um, we didn't have a keyboard player at that time, but we, we started writing the original songs right away. Um, and when we had amassed a number of them, uh, we were, uh, they flew us out to Los Angeles to do the first record. So it was pretty quick. Um, and luckily for me, I had, uh, you know, our producer was, <clears throat> I mean, it, it, at any time, you know, I didn't really have the, the, the recording experience, but at any time, I mean, he could have got in session guitar player to handle some of the things that maybe I was, you know, unsure of, but I'm really lucky that, uh, that he worked with me and, um, and helped me develop things and never said no to an idea. If I said, if I had some wacky idea about a guitar thing with a fuzz pedal and this and that, and this crazy miking or something, because I heard it on a Hendrix record or something or other, he always indulged me. He never said, no, we don't have time for that. And, um, and I'm really lucky for that. Now, you're sitting there, you record the first album, and first of all, when's the first time you hear a Billy Idol song on the radio? Do you remember? I mean, some people say, yeah, I was driving on the street. Some people was like, I was in a tour in Ohio, we're driving. When was the first time? What was the song, and, and where? what happened? Um, well, the last, the last song for the album, we didn't have a single, so our producer locked Billy away all night, and he came back. We were staying at the uh, at the Sunset Marquee Hotel about nine o'clock in the morning. I get a knock on the door. And it's Billy. He's got a ghetto blaster. He's got a bottle of tequila, and he says, "I think I've got the single." And he put on the cassette, and it was White Wedding, uh, his original demo of it. So that was the last song that was recorded for that album, and that was the first first song that I heard on the radio that uh, featured my guitar playing. What were you doing? Do you remember? Um, I was in a girl's car. We were going to a club, and I I looked like such a stud. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I there's no better way to impress a girl than that's me. <laughs> it's worth its weight in gold. <laughs> it's funny, you're, you know. There's not a lot of people who can say that, and you're so right, though. If you're sitting there, hey, yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, that's me. What are they going to yeah, say? They're yeah, they're going to go, holy crap, that's you. Yeah, and it wasn't. You know, I couldn't have planned it or anything, you know, so it's just, uh... So, now, what, what, the videos, because, as again, that's, you know, the videos, people remember your videos. How did the videos change your guys' life and the structure of your career? I mean, because people just, everyone, because Billy looked different. You had different hair. You guys looked different, you know, and, and you weren't, like, you know, the, the glam rock that we were hearing at the time who had the same hair as you or, or dressed someone like you, it was different. It was, it had a different sound. What kind of, what do you think, how did MTV help your career? Um, well, it was, it was a great vehicle. I'll tell you how different it was for, for Billy. Um, when he put out Moni Moni, which is just when I met him, they had put out the, the first EP. I met him. He had already recorded that, uh, which actually Frankie Benali is the drummer on that. Not many people are aware of that we just lost Frankie. But um, uh, so when Moni Moni went to the uh, radio stations, um, they couldn't put Billy's picture on the on the cover of it because radio wouldn't play anything remotely uh, that looked remotely like like. Uh, punk rock and um there was a lot of pressure because he's a good looking guy and they said well can't you be like a rick springfield or they you know billy idol that's the last thing he wants to hear so um but mtv embraced the image and um and obviously uh billy was very smart about the videos i wasn't in the white wedding video but he got toby hooper who was the director of texas chainsaw massacre to do the video. So Billy was going after film people as opposed to just video rock people. Um, and, um, and what we realized with, uh, we, we were smart enough to know with Rebel Yell 
that we were going to do a lot because we were getting ready to go out and do a major tour, you know, an extended tour. And um, we thought, well, we need to do a live video because although people in L.A., Chicago and New York and Boston are pretty hip, um, you have to telegraph the rest of the country how to react and, and this kind of enthusiasm. So when we go to town, everybody wanted to be like the audience in the Billy Idol video, going wild and, you know, carrying on. So, um, so that's, that was really a, a great kind of tool. So you're getting popular. How is your life changing? I mean, you're doing shows. I mean, you know, you had been the one band before and the cover band, but now you're doing shows and people know who Billy Idol is. People know who you are. You guys are a great complimentary to each other on stage. You know, you look good. How is your life starting to change? Are people starting to recognize you? Are you sitting there all of a sudden feeding into the rock star persona? I mean, what's going on with you? Um, well, I, I lived in New York and people in New York don't really give a shit who you are, you know, I mean, you know, you could be Robert De Niro, walk down, go to the local bodega and all they want is you to just pay for your shit and get out, you know, so they don't, nobody in New York really, uh, you know, um, I didn't, I didn't get uh, any kind of noting notice or anything like that, but really the adjustment was to life on the road because, we were, you know, in order to break our, you know, not only the first record, but Rebel Yell, we, we were on the road a lot. And, um, <clears throat> but I think more than anything, it was, uh, you know, fantastic for me to go to England for the first time and go to Italy and all these countries that I never even imagined I'd be playing music in. And uh, I really, I loved it, you know, and to this day, I love that lifestyle. You have to, you have to be really happy with a bit of a nomadic life and it suited me just fine what was it like in between your first album and the second album because i talked to a lot of musicians that say you know back then you had to go to the early morning radio spot then you had to get ready the sound check but then the whole time also the record company is being a pain in the ass because they want you to come out with another album how were you guys handling that with your writing process because you know you must have been it's, it's such a high being on stage that when you get home, you know, you don't really want to write. You don't really want to do anything. You just want to bask in it or you want to have a cocktail. How are you guys dealing with getting the second record made? Um, well, obviously, we knew since since uh, since White Wedding was the was the last tune on the to be done on the first record. That was the bar. You know, the bar had just gone way up in terms of song quality and production and writing and and um, and we were excited to like start over again at that level um and that's pretty much what we did we didn't take much of a break you know the the first album although it had white wedding on it we were still playing very small venues it was a van tour um we had a really small little crew um and um but we were excited to take it to the next level and but what we did do is uh, first album was recorded in los angeles we recorded uh, Rebel Yell at Electric Lady Studios, which was Jimi Hendrix's studio in New York, um, which for me was like I was in a I was in a, a kid in a candy store because uh, even as as a kid there was an all night movie theater next to the studio I'd go to and I'd go see you know who who's Quadrophenia you know all night rock. Uh, movies used to play and uh, I'd see the studio and I would dream of someday being in that studio and here I was uh, and it just seemed like um, you know sometimes you do you do something and there's a little bit extra help coming your way from above or below or whatever you believe but it seemed like every idea we tried worked and I always I always tell musicians you'll know when you've got a winner it's no mystery It'll be undeniable, you know, and uh, and it really we would have these listening sessions at the end of the week where we'd invite friends and, and we'd play, you know, what we had worked on that week. And everybody was just like, man, this is really a good record, you know, because by then we had, you know, Rebel Yell and Flesh of Fantasy, Eyes Without a Face. And, uh, and, and, um, and they came about once we were in the studio and we we we. Uh, had the proper musicians to play on it. It really came about pretty quickly. 
Now, as you're getting bigger and you're playing bigger venues, how are you acclimating to performing in front of a bigger crowd? I know a lot of times people say it's the same thing. We just have more energy to feed off. But was there something that, you know, as a guitarist and as a showman, was there anything that you were expanding your horizons as you got into bigger crowds and it gave you a bigger platform to do some of the stuff you wanted to do that you couldn't have done for a cover band in Long Island? Um. Yeah, but we always we always treaded that, that you know. So, <clears throat> so we go out on on the road to support the Rebel Yell record, and we're still playing clubs, but eventually they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then eventually we. I remember we came to L.A. and we played Santa Monica, Santa Monica Civic. It's like wow, we we must be doing all right, you know. <laughs> and then we get booked, and we played. Uh, our return back to New York was to play uh, Nassau Coliseum which was just like a dream, you know, it's like, um, but we were always very careful. We never had pyro. We never, I think because of, because of Billy's background, we never wanted to fall into the trap of pyro and all these kind of things that really punk rock was, was not about lasers. And so, uh, and to this day, I always tell people that the best special effect that we have is the, is the chemistry on stage. And, you know, that holds, holds true for the Stones or, or Aerosmith or any of these bands that have a great duo or the U2. You know, uh, really, that's, you know, that's that, that chemistry and feeding off each other. It, it, people recognize it and, and, and they know when it's real. And, um, and I think that's what we were trying to present more than anything. Now there was a there was a three hour gap, three year gap for the the, the third album. What happened there? Um, success, <laughs> because when we were when we did uh, Rebel Yell, <clears throat> the record company didn't have any any expectations, and we were on a small label, Chrysalis, and then suddenly uh, Billy Idol is the is the uh, is the breadwinner. You know they they had uh, you know had some other bigger acts but Billy was definitely the new big thing and we were having hit singles and um, so then they started to take notice oh what's the next record going to be oh well you, you guys didn't really have your nose in any of our stuff before and and we got nervous you know we we had something to live up to and um, and also <clears throat> what had happened uh, once we started playing big arenas in these big um, shows the adrenaline uh you know you're in front of twenty thousand people the adrenaline rush to 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 go from that to literally within 15 minutes you're on a tour bus for a seven hour drive that crash was painful it was none of us knew how to deal with it um but cocaine helped (laughs) (laughs) and uh and alcohol and it kind of you know, you could continue the adrenaline and kind of come in for a soft landing by the time that you got to your hotel room and you slept and got ready for sound check. Um, so maybe we picked up some bad habits before doing um, uh, the next record, you know. Um, and this was also a time in the, in the record business which, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol were an accepted thing. You know, you go in for a meeting with whoever and they chop out a line or whatever it's business was very different then um so you can you can spend a lot of time and and money (laughs) when you combine that and you know with with the uh recording process was that was the drugs and the alcohol do you feel it affected your writing at all because you know i know people who are, are performers who will never write or perform under the influence they sit there and but then after they're done, forget it. They're gone. They're gone to the next story. But did you guys? Were you guys pretty much sober when you wrote, or was? Because you know, we all know cocaine and alcohol gives you a hangover. You feel like crap. You know, you're not feeling creative. I mean, did it affect your creative process at all? Um, well, it became pretty apparent that I couldn't play under the influence. <laughs> so, so our producer wouldn't let me have anything. Um, so I kind of rushed through. <laughs> you know, um, what what it. What had happened is it, it really messed with communication, you know, um, because, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol, man, you know, you just, you, it's just, people just talk a lot of bullshit on it, really. Um, 
and whereas before we all had this really good communication and we didn't listen to outside influences or anything. No one had an opinion about what we were doing other than ourselves. And that I think with, with the drugs and alcohol, those lines get a little bit blurred and sessions are taking longer. You're partying afterwards and then you're coming into the studio later and later. Um, <clears throat> the work ethic kind of goes out the window and... Um, and, uh, and the music suffers. I mean, I just, I, I think there's some amazing records, mostly on psychedelics, though. <laughs> Seems like a lot of the Beatles and Hendrix things, they, they took the right drugs, but, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, 80s Coke records, just, you know, I don't think they benefited from the, from the drugs. <laughs> now, you personally, you won a Grammy for Top Gun, um, how did that come about? Because you don't think, like, you know, Top Gun, you know, Top Gun was a great movie, but you don't think, oh yeah, Billy Idol's guitarist is going to be on a Top Gun album, and the song is such a great song, but when you first listen, you think, well, wait a second, that's not, good. you know, how did that come about? Um, on the th on the third record, Whiplash Smile, the keyboard player was Harold Faltermeyer, who was our producer Keith's buddy, and they both had worked on Donna Summer's records together, and so Harold uh, came in, I think he was in with us for about a week to do the keyboards, and he pulled me aside and said, I'm working on this film with this actor, Tom Cruise. I, I think uh, Risky Business was the only film he had done up until then. And, and he uh, put in a, a Betamax, he had a Betamax, <laughs> days of Betamax. And he put a Betamax in and showed me the aerial footage, which back then looked unbelievable. <laughs> now you look at it and you know, you can tell it's a little plain on the stick. <laughs> but, um, but I said, yeah, he said, uh, you know, I've got this theme, uh, this anthem, and uh, I, I'd love for you to play guitar on it. So on Saturday, I remember this really vividly, uh, we, we were already set up, you know, in the Billy Idol session world. So Saturday, we finished our session at about 10 o'clock. Harold takes the multi-track, puts it on, and I think we spent about two hours uh recording it tracking it and had an extended guitar solo and um and i kind of forgot about it afterwards and then the movie becomes a big success and then harold calls me and tells me we're not nominated for a grammy and i said get the fuck out you know we're not gonna win a grammy and he goes i'm telling you we're gonna win harold is like the he is like the poster child for power power of positive thinking he is just a positive guy and he just said we're gonna win a grammy watch and what was incredible was the grammys were in los angeles that year i was living in new york but as luck luck would have it i was performing with with idol on that grammy show so i had to be out there anyway so in the afternoon when the uh when our, when our category was announced i won the grammy and then i you know, go back to the hotel. I'm a Grammy winner, and I get to perform with Billy, and it was, uh, it was, it was quite a quite a night. You know? Now you played with so many different people, and you know, you, that's a lot of people don't know. And you know, also you play different kinds of guitar. You know, like you play more flamenco stuff like that. But how did you end up performing with Michael Jackson? Because that's something that it, once again you don't think. I mean, I'm, I guess Slash was on beat at different guitar. He looked for different very talented guitarists. But how did that relationship happen? Um. Well, it was Eddie Van Halen on Beat It, and the, oh. and so Quincy Jones. Uh, by then, I was signed to Warner Brothers, um, and my my uh, the guy that signed me was Ted Templeman, who was Van Halen's producer, but also A and R guy at Warner's, and he was friends with Quincy Jones. So the story I got from Ted was Quincy calls him and goes, "Hey, man, we're doing working on the follow up to Thriller. Beat It was such a great track for us. We got it. We have another rock track." Uh, it's called Dirty Diana, and we need a, uh, a rock guitar player. Who can you suggest? And um, uh, as luck would have it, Ted uh, threw my name in there, and uh, and that's how I that's how I got the gig. Now you played with so many other people. How does that happen? The same way, like I know you played with Rick Ocasek. How does how does do they come searching for you, or is it through the record company? Because you look on your website, which people, he has a great new website, stevestevensguitar.com, and he's also on Twitter, which his uh, PR guy said, hell must have frozen over because Steve's yeah. on Twitter, and he's at Steve Stevens on there. But how do you hook up with these different people, and who were some that you were just like, holy crap, I'm playing with this person? Well, obviously, a Michael Jackson was one of those moments, like, 
that's a once in a lifetime experience. But um, <clears throat> mostly it's, um, you know, uh, an artist uh, will be aware of what I do and they'll, they'll start working with a producer and they'll go, wouldn't it be great to get so-and-so on it? And wouldn't it be great to, you know, try this or, um, and usually they're able to, you know, back, back then they would call a management or, 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 or a record company. Um, and uh, in, in some cases it was um, a friend of a friend, like with Rick, Rick Ocasek is a good example. Uh, Rick had a mutual friend of mine and my friend said, hey, Rick Ocasek's in the studio recording and uh, was wondering if you'd come in and play on a couple of tracks. Really, really very, very um, innocent like that. Uh, with the case of Joni Mitchell, um, she had asked Billy Idol to guest on a song and we, we happened to be in Los Angeles and, um, and Idol calls me at about midnight and goes, Hey, I'm in the studio with Joni Mitchell. She wants you to come in and play guitar, <laughs> you know, because Billy suggested it, you know, um, you know, which was really nice of him. And, uh, so, um, you know, it happens all, all ways, but a lot of times it's usually through friends. Now, what year did Billy get in the bad motorcycle accident? I was the, I believe it was 90, um, like, like, or, or 89. Or, so after that, he didn't perform for a while. What do you do then? Because, you know, you, you've, you're a songwriter, you're accomplished, people know you, you're a Grammy winner. What do you, which direction do you go? What do you, I mean, what do you do? Because you have been with him for so long and it's such a relationship. Like, where, what do you do? What goes through your mind when that happens? Actually, after, after we finished Whiplash Smile Tour, uh, I was signed to Warner Brothers, as I mentioned, and I was signed to a solo deal. And, um, and Billy wanted to move. To, he was planning to move to Los Angeles, and I didn't want to move to, to L.A. I, I, I felt it was not the right thing for me, uh, especially considering any time I got to L.A., I would party. And uh, I thought, oh, this is not not a good move for me. So I stayed in New York and, um, and, uh, we actually didn't work together during that period of time. Uh, that was when he did charmed life and, um, and he had his, his, his accident. So what was you like when you started recording a solo album? I mean, were you sitting there cause you, you, how do you put your band together to play when you get a solo deal? Because you know, you are a good songwriter you want to be complimented with the people that compliment you. How did you go looking for these people? Uh, well, at that time, there was a number of guitar players who were looking for singers because that's I needed to find a singer first. Um, so we'd exchange tapes. John Sykes uh, from Whitesnake and Blue Murder was looking for a singer. So he'd send me the tapes of the guys he had passed on. I would send him tapes because the record company would, would get submissions uh, everyone know, knew that we were looking for singers. Uh, Jakey Lee was looking for a singer. So we were all exchanging these cassette tapes amongst us. And um, that's, and then we would audition people. That was really the way to, the only way to do it back then. So you have your career going. Then you end up in, I guess we call it a super group with Bozio, Levin, and Stevens. How did that come about? And did you hate the term super group? Because it is. You guys are all, you know, good at your craft. I mean, how, how, I mean, <laughs> well, I, well well, the other two guys are, yeah. I don't know about, I mean, I was, so, so, so Terry Bozio is, uh, his manager owned the, the, the label, was the head of label that we did those records for. So, um, they, they said to Terry, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great to do something with, uh, you know, a trio, that was the original idea. Um, what guitar players, uh, would you consider? So they got down a piece of paper and, record company is writing out the names and it's all the usual from what Terry told me is all the usual names, the Satriani's and the, you know, instrumental guitar players. And, uh, and Terry wrote down my name and they went, Oh, that's interesting. And, um, I think Terry understood because he was, he was, there's a, there was a lot of similarities because he was a really technically brilliant drummer, but went in to do missing persons and understood about having tunes and having a pop sensibility. And I think he recognized that in what I was doing. Uh, so Terry contacted me. I went, he was living in Texas at the time and I went and met with him. And uh, I think you know, I got a really bad cold as soon as I arrived. I think we ended up playing 
I was in bed. His wife nursed me back to health. And we ended up playing in his garage like one day. And we said, yeah, you know, you know, we, a lot of a lot of working with people is chemistry and just liking the person. You know, that's half of it. If, if the guy's a jerk, doesn't matter how good the musicianship <laughs> is, he's still going to be a jerk, you know. So uh, and Terry's not a jerk. So so we ended up working uh, out some some ideas in that one day. And then we said, um, all right, we need a bass player. And we both went, well, we'll never get him. But wouldn't it be great if we can get Tony Levin? But he'll never do it, you know. And then as luck would have it, he was in between uh, Peter Gabriel gigs and uh, and uh, he uh, signed on to do the records with us. Now, you've had a great career. When did you start playing again with Billy? Um, so I got a phone call. Uh, wow, I guess early, maybe 92 or 93, I, I, I would suppose. Um, and I originally came out to Los Angeles, uh, to write with him and, um, I was still, still was living in New York. And then, um, I was, I moved into a residential hotel, uh, because his record company was folding Chrysalis and they moved his deal over to Capitol. Um, and it's it these things kept happening with the label and they and our guys were being this the, the record business was really in a state of flux and and also it was when grunge was really grunge in the beginning of like techno rock you know nine inch nails and things like that so we didn't really know where billy idol music fit in for a couple of years um but i stayed out and i liked los angeles and a lot of my friends uh from new york had moved out to los angeles and a lot of them had gotten sober and um and I thought, and everybody had a home studio and something you, you can't do in Manhattan. It's just cost prohibitive. Um, so I liked it. And I said, as, as more time went on, I went, you know what? I'm just going to move out here little by little, you know, started moving my stuff out here. And, um, and then um, one of the catalysts that really solidified things for us was doing the VH1 Storytellers uh, because it was a new way to look at our catalog and we did it. Uh, acoustically, but also a bit of flamenco, and I was able to take some of these other styles that I had accumulated and bring them into the Billy Idol thing. And uh, and it was we it was the first time he and I had been, gone back to New York. Uh, we we taped it in New York, and it was just such a great feeling to be back with my partner. And we we came off the tunnel and we passed our old rehearsal space and. It was, it felt really good, you know, it, like, it was like, not only were we back musically, but our friendship was intact. Because when I didn't work with him, we never slacked each other off. It was never bad blood or anything. So we didn't have to make amends or any of this kind of stuff. It was, uh, it was um, pretty natural. And, uh, and the storytellers thing was, was really good. And it was su success. We toured behind it. And and that's when uh, I felt like, yeah, okay, I'm back. Now, you mentioned earlier the Vegas residency. How does res Explain to my listeners what exactly a residency is. And is it just, is it a great night? Because everybody in Vegas wants to have fun, and they're coming to see you guys, and they're going to walk out, you know, feeling great. I mean, unless you're an asshole. If you walk out of a show with your guys <laughs> and you don't feel great, you're sort of an ass. But how did that happen? And, and is it just great because you're at the same place for a while? Um. Yeah, be, uh, be, what what happens is people will fly in. We do three three shows a week, so you know you're going to have repeat uh, audience members. So uh, you don't want to do the same show. So it allows you to like dig into our catalog, maybe play some of the um, more obscure songs, or maybe some of the songs that we weren't able to play back in the '80s because the technology wasn't there to recreate it on stage. Um, and also your sound and lights, you can really get them fantastic because you're not moving them. And, and your road crew's in a great mood because they don't have to pack up and get, get on a bus. And, you know, pe people don't, don't realize that the road crew leaves, the, you know, on a tour. They leave the gig. They're out of there sometimes at 2 in the morning. And then they, go, they don't go to a hotel. They go straight to the next gig to set up. And uh, those guys work their asses off. And to, to, to have them 
you know, in one place and they're able to have a proper meal. And it's a, it's a great hang because we get to hang all together and have dinners together. And, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's uh, obviously before COVID, we do meet and greets and you get to actually meet your fans and meet their kids now who they're turning on to. Uh, Billy Idol, I get a lot of parents who have just bought their 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 son or daughter their first guitar, and um, and they want some pointers and stuff. It's it's great, man. I, I, I love all that stuff. I always the meet and greet always blows me away because I've been lucky from interviewing people. I get to go, you know, they'll come into Philadelphia. I'll go backstage, so it's it's different, you know. But it's funny because you know back when I was younger, there was never a meet and greet. Like I remember hanging out. Where the where the buses came out of the spectrum, and I got the Doobie Brothers, one of the guys Simmons, his autograph on my stub, and I was like, "Oh, this is great!" But it's so great now that the the people can get to see you, and 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 actually, it makes you more tangible, and I think that's so good for fans. Um, yeah, especially you know when when um, you know when they come see us and they see that uh, you know Billy and I are still together, and this is. You know, we've outlasted our relationship has outlasted a lot of their uh, marriages, or or they remember their uh, you know they remember the first time they brought Rebel Yell into the house and their parents were banging on the door, shut that shit off, and maybe their parents aren't alive anymore, and they 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 uh, uh, you know they have uh, fond feelings about about the fact we're still doing it, um, and you, you do get a number of people who maybe uh, your music helped them through an illness or. Uh, uh, cancer treatment and they they listen to um, some of our music and they they bring photos of them you know with headphones on while they were being treated you know going through chemo or something and um, man that's I mean how could you not be touched and moved by somebody that that you've been an inspiration to or your music has has made their life better uh, and to get that kind of um, feedback from from fans you know our fans are fantastic that way and um it makes it really special really special now i also know you're on cameo now and it's at steven s agogo you have a gogo in the album too what's with the agogo what's the connection to the agogo all right so um uh after i, I worked with uh, i did a record with vince neal and we we toured behind it with van halen and it was like the height of debauchery as you would imagine with you know, everything involved. So I got off the road and, um, I, I, um, I had to kind of reassess what I was doing. <laughs> and I went to see a famous flamenco guitar player named Paco de Lucia. And it re one of my early guitar teachers was a flamenco teacher. And it reminded me of why I picked up the instrument to begin with. And I said, I'm not going to play electric guitar for a year and I'm going to do a flamenco record. And I, but it was a flamenco record combined with electronic elements and uh, uh, synthesizers and sequences. And so it was flamenco agogo, kind of like the, the electronic part. So I kept the agogo. <laughs> now, what can people expect from Cameo? Uh, because I think, once again, we talked about getting to know your fans. I'm lucky enough to interview people, so I get to talk to you guys. There's a lot of people that never get that that um that chance and they're and they're so fascinated because they love your music they you know they're fans what when someone gets a cameo what do you, do you play a, what do you do for them um yeah sometimes they'll they'll say hey you know what i play guitar and um you know it's i'm not going to do guitar lessons on there but um if there's some little snippet or a solo um i'll play it for them and i'll show it to them and i'll you know, say, hey, you know, this is what I do. Or, or people just want, want uh, you know, send a birthday message or something like that or whatever. You know, I, I'm not real uh, picky about what they want me to do. Just no nudes. <laughs> and before we go, I, you had mentioned earlier you're working with Billy. You're working for a new album. What's the sound going to be like? Are you guys, you know, I mean, is it going to be old school Billy or is it, what's it going to be like? Um. Well, the tracks we've done so far have been with Butch Walker. Uh, uh, so Butch is known for, God, he's pretty diverse, but he, you know, he was in a band called South Gang. He's a guitar player, singer. So he comes from a, a, a strong rock and roll background, but also he's you know, done Green Day and Fall Out Boy and uh, so many, you know, he's got a, he's also a kid from Nashville, so he's got a good 
strong kind of country thing to it. But it sounds like classic Billy Idol done now. But it's very guitar oriented, uh, you know, whereas some of the other uh, records that we've done have been more keyboard oriented. But I think because Butch and I both play guitar, um, uh, we both kind of went, yeah, we're going to go guitar crazy on this. And he's got tons of different guitar amps and stuff at his studio. And uh, we had a field day just coming up with cool guitar things. And, you know, we're not afraid to, like, give a nod to some of the things we've done. But there are a couple of tracks which I will say uh, are like something that Billy Idol has never done before. Uh, but you, when you hear them, you go, this, yeah, he sounds, he just sounds great on them. You know, that, that's all I can go by. The quality of the songs, um, you know, Butch is a real songsmith and he's really helped us hone the songs and the lyrics and, you know, attention to detail uh, is really, really great with him. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I want to thank you for coming on. People, um, check out the Masterclass. Go to, go also to Steve's website. It's, uh, it, it looks good. You know, it's, it's very nice, creative. It's his bio. It has all that stuff. It's stevestevensguitar.com. His Twitter is Steve Stevens. His cameo is Steve... Is it Steve? I wrote, wrote it down. Steve S. Agogo. Right, yeah. Okay, well, people, check that out, and, uh, Go listen to some old music, uh, uh, Billy Idol. <laughs> Check out, uh, go go listen to the Top Gun soundtrack. It's actually a very good soundtrack, I, I must admit. Anyway, people, I'm Steve Cooper. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. My website, coopertalk.net. I have over 800 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And remember, awesome. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, and eat your vegetables. And I'll talk to you guys next time.